he also had the power, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome death. Now listen, this is important. The same power, the exact same power that raised Christ from the dead is the exact same power that raises us from spiritual death and brings us into spiritual life. It is the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles with you, please open to John chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 19 and 20 today. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. One of the things that I think is all too often uh, kind of passed over when it comes to teaching and preaching about the resurrection or teaching and preaching of the Christ uh, is a focus on the fact that he did indeed rise from the dead. And there's so many theological implications there that are beautiful that all too often when we just simply look at the story where the stones rolled away, Jesus isn't there, a lot of times those get lost and we'll teach more on narrative, uh, we'll teach more of kind of the story of what happened rather than trying to look at what's actually going on underneath surface. So if you will, again, John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father God, that you would again show us more of Christ. God, illuminate the text. God, on today, Resurrection Sunday, Father, that we would be focused on not just the work that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross, but the fact that He is not dead, that He is indeed alive. God, what a gift it is that we have um, the ability to serve a risen Savior, one who is not dead, who is not past, who is not just a memory, but is currently alive. Because the Bible says you're the God of the living. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time, this chance, and this ability to gather you in worship today. Lord, it's in your name we pray. In accordance with your will we ask. Amen. Again, let's look back at John chapter 20, verse 19. This is kind of the, the verse we're going to isolate right now. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, there's a, a key phrase there, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, why? For fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, first point. The truest peace is found in the believer who finds himself in the presence of his master. The truest peace is found in the believer who finds himself or herself in the presence of his or her master. So here, here's the joyful part. Jesus is actually alive. He's alive. He rose from the dead. Guess what? He is alive. Now, for so long, I would hear those words on Easter, and I would just totally pass over the significance of that. It meant absolutely nothing to me. It was foreign to me. It was something that I didn't really care about. And, uh, you know, I would be excited as, you know, any other Sunday about the meal more at the end of the service than I would be about the theological implications of Jesus Christ and the fact that he came back from the dead. Now, I, I was a, a foolish kid. Uh, most of you know I grew up the son of a, a minister who later became an army chaplain, and I did the whole Christian thing my entire life. Um, you know, I swore uh, that I was a Christian through and through. I was baptized, said yes to four questions at the end of a sermon. I was, I was by all means an evangelical Christian. And it took a long time for God to actually work on my heart and change me and, and turn me into the person uh, that I am now, not on behalf of myself or because of my own merit or something that I was able to do on my own, 
but because he moved and he brought me from death into life. So, again, it's very easy to pass over the details because everyone here knows the story already. Everybody knows about Jesus, what he did, so on and so forth. But, I would argue with Calvin, Turretin, Spurnock, Spurgeon, Edwards, uh, Charnock, Sproul, Lawson, MacArthur, and many others that this is literally the culmination of some of the most glorious days in human history. That we have the ability, literally, to uh, look at this, again, Monday night quarterback, to look back in on the biblical account and to say, hey, this is what was going on all around from just one person's perspective. We're getting kind of a 360 view of what actually happened. So, understand the setting from the 11 apostles' viewpoint. Again, at this time, Judas has already killed himself. He's betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. All right? Which, interestingly, if we go back to the Old Testament, that's exactly how much you were required to pay for a slave. He's already betrayed Jesus. Judas is already dead. So we have the 11 apostles and some of the other disciples, and they're in hiding. They just watched their Lord, the guy who they've been walking with for the past three years, get killed on a cross. So, please remember that all throughout the Gospel accounts of Jesus over and over and over and over again, He tells everybody, look, I'm going to be raised up, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. But, all of His disciples, and the guys who are ultimately His apostles, are hiding. They're hiding right now. Why? The text simply says, for fear of the Jews, fear of their own people, fearful enough to shut, and I would argue, lock the doors while they try and figure out what to do next. They're sitting around, they're wondering, what do we do now? Understand their emotions. They, they walked with Christ for three literal years. They sat under His teaching, witnessed His miracles. They, uh, they constantly ate with him, they talked with him, they prayed with him, uh, they would lay their head near the same rock that he laid on when they were out wandering around teaching and preaching. They did this for three years. Now Jesus is dead. He's not alive. At least at this point, they thought that he was still dead. But look at John 20, verse 19 again. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came in, stood in their midst, and said to them, Peace be with you. Now there, it's Sunday evening, and the women, they came, and the women have already seen the empty tomb, and they've come back. And remember the biblical account, uh, the, the Marys, and there's actually a plurality of women plus the Marys. Uh, the Marys go and see the tomb. They see that it's empty. Uh, they're told, hey, he's not here. He's risen. He's alive. They run back, and if we look at Luke's account, all the apostles, all the disciples thought that the women were insane. They literally thought they were crazy. They thought they were nuts. And they're wondering, well, how we've literally watched him die. How on earth could he now be alive? They still, it, it, the, the, the internal mechanisms, the gears in their head had not yet clicked to let them know that this is indeed the plan that Jesus had. So, Peter, to verify this, sprints like a madman back to the tomb. And what does he do? He stoops. He looks down inside of the tomb. And then it says he goes home. It says he goes home. It doesn't say that he sprinted throughout Jerusalem uh, and he whipped up all the other apostles into believing that Jesus Christ was indeed alive, that he was, he was risen from the dead. It just says, well, he went back home. That's what he did. But when we look back at our sermon text, all the apostles are now gathered together and it says the door shut. But remember what else it says? It says that Jesus showed up. It said he appeared to them. 
Now, I, I would argue, as would most commentators, that Jesus didn't give a, a secret knock at the apostles' club door, uh, and then he received the knock back, and then the door was open, and then he came in, and then all of a sudden everyone was astonished. Here's what I would argue. Uh, I would argue that he appeared, though the door was shut and possibly locked. I, w- I would argue that that's a miracle. This is an interesting perspective on the capabilities of the Christ. Consider this, how many, and how, well, frankly, most movies, what do they portray about Jesus? What do they portray about the actual events that unfold on Resurrection Day? They would say, well, you know, it took uh, literally the stone being rolled away for Jesus to come out. That's what most of the movies portray, isn't it? That's not what the Bible says. It literally doesn't mention that at all. And let's just kind of logically work through the story. We'll deduce some of these facts and we'll see what's actually going on here. Remember, uh, he came out apart from an angel. What was it? The power that raised Jesus Christ is literally the same power that raises uh, those who are spiritually dead and brings them into spiritual life. That's the Holy Spirit. And so I would argue that Jesus didn't need an angel to roll a piece of stone away that he himself made in order to exit the tomb and to head out. The angel rolled the tomb stone away to let the women in, to let them see what had already been done. Now Jesus just proved that he can transport with a physical body through doors and walls. Does anyone think that a piece of stone that he himself has created is going to stop him from exiting a tomb that he was laid in? Now, additionally, if we think about the biblical account, what was left in the tomb? His clothes. So I would argue that Jesus didn't have the stone rolled away because he couldn't get out on his own and then he walked out without his clothes. That doesn't make any sense, does it? So we see, again, how dangerous it is to put all of our hope and our faith uh, of what we know of the Christ or what we know of biblical stories into a movie or into a, a cartoon or to a children's account. We don't actually look at the details and think, wait, yeah, Jesus wouldn't have wandered around without his clothes after he was raised from the dead, would he? No, he wouldn't. That would have been immoral. That would have been sinful if he had chosen to do that. So, where did he get his clothes from that he showed back up in? I mean, because if he left his old earthly clothes there, and now all of a sudden he showed up in the room here with the, uh, the apostles and the disciples of, of, of himself, he's clothed. Where did he get his clothes from? Simply, I, I would argue, heaven. You see, Christ didn't return from the dead like Lazarus, only to die again. When he was raised, he was raised with a body incorruptible, without spot, blemish, decay, or the effects of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 42-44. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable or a decayable body, a body that will rot, that will go away. It is raised in an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is 1 Corinthians 15.53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. 
Needless to say, I'm sure the disciples were absolutely terrified. I mean, I, I would be personally terrified. Imagine, if you will, that you're in your house. You're in a, a let's say you're, you're in your bedroom. It's a locked room. Let's just say you're in there praying or you're, you're reading or you're eating some food. And then all of a sudden, the person who's closest to you in your entire life, poof, just appears right in front of you. Even if that was my wife, that would terrify me. If she just materialized out of thin air and all of a sudden popped up right in front of me, I'd be absolutely terrified. That'd, that'd be a little scary. And so rightly, uh, you know, what, what's going on here? The, the, the disciples, the apostles are terrified. Uh, I would venture to say that's exactly why Jesus said, peace be with you. Why? Because remember what happens in almost every single Old Testament account of angels showing up on the scene or any New Testament account of angels showing up on the scene. What do people do? They lose their minds. They're terrified at the glory that's coming off of those angels, the reflected glory of God. And here is God himself in man, Jesus Christ. I'd be scared personally if I was in a locked room and poof, Jesus appeared right in front of me. I'd be absolutely terrified. Not only did Christ have the power to forgive sin, this is important. He also had the power, the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome death. Now listen, this is important. The same power, the exact same power that raised Christ from the dead is the exact same power that raises us from spiritual death and brings us into spiritual life. It is the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.11 But if the Spirit... Now, you'll notice this is the NASB. If we look, actually look at that verse there, but if the Spirit, whenever any, any obscure word like Him or Spirit or He or they, if we're talking about the Trinity, whenever that's capitalized in the NASB, that's referring to deity. So here, but if the Holy Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you so holy spirit brings jesus to life ah holy spirit brings christians to life look at the theological implications all right think of baptism for a second right when jesus was buried in his tomb was he buried like this no he wasn't buried straight up and down how was he buried he was laid out likely on a, a probably a cut up piece of a rock a raised bed if you will and he was laid down flat baptism lowered into the water, submerged under the water, dead, brought up out of the water to walk in the newness of life. Life. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 18-20. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So ultimately, when we look at how, how was it that Jesus was literally raised from the dead? God sent the Holy Spirit. Okay, now this isn't in our text, but Ephesians 2, uh, when we think about Ephesians 2, but you were dead. You were dead. Here's the biggest, the biggest awesome statement in the Bible. But God who is rich in mercy with His great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, brought us from death into life. How amazing is that? <laughs> you see, the glory of this whole thing is that we're literally getting a foretaste of glory divine in seeing the risen Savior and seeing Jesus come from death into life. Not only is our regeneration or the making new of our spirits by the Holy Spirit, not only is that a picture of Christ, but it is also a foretaste of being perfected, physically speaking. So God, when He was done creating in the Genesis account, think about this for a second, when He looked back at everything that He had made, so He looked back at the previous six days and He said, you know what? Everything that I've made is perfectly good. It's good. It's very good, says the biblical account. Now, if there was sin, if there was decay, if there was death, if there was wickedness, if there was uh, spiritual war going on during that time, I think the, the very simple biblical argument is that it would not be very good. It just wouldn't. And so we see the restoration of what it should have been like. Adam didn't have disease. He didn't have decay. He would have lived forever perfectly in the garden had there not been sin. And now Jesus is raised uh, with an incorruptible, spiritual, physical body. A glorified body. And we get to look to Him for thanks in that because of what He accomplished on the cross. We also see the perfect Christ exemplifying the reality of His actual body by ascending with angels on high in that exact same body. John 20, verse 20. And when He had said this, He showed them both His hands and His side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Here's point two. When we see and know Christ, there is always rejoicing. When we see and we know Christ, there's always rejoicing. Think about this for a second. I'm not talking about, oh, we know the story of Jesus. Oh, we know the, um, we know the, the, the cartoon. Or we know the, you know, if we had the old stained glass windows with the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, hippie Jesus with the really soft hands. No, not that we know that guy. But what does the Bible say knowledge of the Christ is? That we love Him and we keep His commandments. So if we actually love Him, if we actually know Him, the Bible says we'll keep His commandments. The only way that we'll truly be able to rejoice in the Christ and what He's done for us is what? If we're actually Christians. When Christ is real, because He is, there's great rejoicing. So they, think about the, the glorious promises of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is, this is future. This is looking into the future uh, at the end of the age, all right, when those who are His, uh, the true church, all right, winds up uh, figuratively consummating that marriage with Jesus Christ in the future. Look at Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Let us be miserable. Let us be frustrated, upset, not happy, impatient. No. Let us rejoice and be glad. Let us rejoice and be glad. This is future, this is imperfection right now. This is imperfection. This is not, this is not temporal. All right? This is eternal at this point. This is forever. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb. And that's Jesus. All right? The Lamb that was slain on the cross, that's Jesus. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, that would be the church, that would be true Christians. All right? His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. 
when he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. This is real. We have the ability in, a, in an awesome way to interact with the triune God of the universe. Isaiah 25, 6-9. I used to get in trouble when I'd read this in Baptist churches. A lot of trouble. They don't like drinking. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine. Pause. Let me explain in common tongue literally what's being said here in the Hebrew. God's not going to break out the Boone's farm. God's not going to, to get a box of Franzia. God's going to break out literally the good stuff. The good wine. The aged wine. The choice wine. The wine that is just beyond all f- ability to fathom, understand, or comprehend. It will be that good. He's bringing that for us. Also with choice pieces, with marrow, uh, in refined aged wine. There it is again. So when we, see, when we see the same thing said twice within like a sentence of itself, especially in Hebrew poetry, when we see that twice, that means pay attention. Which means that God makes really good wine. Really, really good wine. And on this mountain, He will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time, meaning there will be no more death, there will be no more decay, there will be no more disease, war, etc., etc. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. Here it is. Here's here's how we know. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. So we see both an an element of having temporal uh, rejoicing and eternal, heavenly rejoicing. We realize that this event is literally the start of an eternity without sin, wickedness, famine, war, people fighting each other over really foolish things, anarchy, chaos, you name it. All the stuff that we see on the news every time we flip it on. Every single time. When we see that this will literally be no more, this gives us cause to greatly rejoice. More importantly, however, is the fact that we will spend literally forever with the risen Savior. How amazing it is to think that literally we'll get to spend forever with Jesus uh, and that there will be eternal joys in Him, uh, in His goodness, in His mercy, in His grace. We will forever be at peace with our great God and our great King, King Jesus. So one of the things that, that if you get your theology from country western songs, it's a terrible place to get your theology from, just so everybody knows. Everybody knows that I like to make fun of Garth Brooks and uh, Carrie Underwood and all the other crew who think that they know uh, what praying looks like or what Christian living looks like. And I I heard a song a long time ago that was talking about how heaven's going to be hunting and fishing and four-wheeling and all that kind of fun stuff like that. And um, my my thought for that is, if you look at this, Um, If I had a chair, I'd sit in it to talk right now just to talk about the the seriousness of this implication. By show of hands, how many people have ever had a new car? Okay. Uh, A new house. 
okay? Uh, let's say uh, a new gun, a new boat, a new whatever it is. How long did it take for that joy to fade? Gone. Instantly. How long did it take for that joy to fade? Poof. Gone. How fast are you going to get bored in heaven if that's all you got? Is hunting, fishing, and four-wheeling. If that's all you got, I mean, that's going to be miserable. That's not going to be fun. That's not going to be enjoyable. So here's how literally the Christian will not go insane spending an eternity doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again in heaven. They will be chasing down the infinite, the infinite, excuse me, the infinite majesties and perfections of Jesus Christ. That's how you won't literally go insane in heaven is because if Christ is eternal, this is, this is logical deduction now, if Christ is actually the eternal, perfect, omniscient, omnipotent, holy, mighty God of the universe, if He is that, and we are finite creatures, meaning we had a beginning, but if, we're, if we have an immortal soul and we continue on forever into the future, we will literally never, ever, ever be able to chase down His perfections. We won't be able to get to the end of them. Which means that they won't ever get old in the same way that a new car until you spill the hot McDonald's coffee all over a cloth seat and the stain never comes out. You're like, oh man, it was really good a year ago. Now it looks like a group of homeless people lived in it. (laughs) I've, I've been there. I've been there, right? I've been homeless. I've wandered around in the desert before without a place to lay my head. So I can say that. I know what, what the inside of a vehicle with five guys who don't have a place to, to lay their head looks like. It's gross. I did that for a year in the desert of Iraq. It's not fun. It stinks. There's trash everywhere. And it's just bleh. Nobody wants to get in that vehicle. Nobody wants to be around it. But the perfect, unblemished, spotless, holy, magnificent Lamb of God That's why you won't go crazy in heaven. Because you'll be chasing Him down. You'll be learning more about Him. So so listen here, Colossians 3.1 Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, i.e. you're a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep looking at those things. Uh, But also... Notice where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How many dead people are seated somewhere? Nope. They're all laying down. Their bones are decayed and they're nothing. Christ is alive and He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Acts 7, 55-56 But being full of the Holy Spirit, He gazed intently into heaven. And this would be Stephen the first Christian martyr. He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Guy on earth looking to things in the future. On earth looking to things in the future. Looking forward and past this temporal existence into things that actually matter. Hebrews 10, verses 11-14. through 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
But he, and this would be Jesus, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This is exactly why we have cause to rejoice to be glad, to be thankful that He is literally waiting. Now understand, Jesus is literally waiting at the face of His Father for a command to come back and gather His people. To come back and judge the world. To come back and wage war against those who truly hate Him and want nothing to do with Him. And to gather His people together. Why? So that He can invite them as the bride to the wedding feast so that he can have that relationship with them, that he can have that time of perfect, unblemished, spotless communion with them. Revelation 19, verse 7. This is the future. Understand that. This is future. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, Jesus. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Church, Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen. He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. How then shall we live? If you're not a Christian, repent of your sins and believe the Gospel. Turn from your wickedness and believe Christ. Pretty hard. Pretty hard. Why? Because the world wants you to literally dwell in your sin, do nothing with your life, throw all of your money at its system, decay, rot, be miserable, get on depression meds, go get a psychiatrist, uh, and then die. In order that they might propagate more people into a system to suck you completely dry. If that's the life that you want, there's nothing that can be done for you. Nothing. But... If you turn from your sins and believe the Christ, you will have mercies forever and ever and evermore. And there is salvation found in but one, Jesus Christ. Christians, how then shall we live knowing that Jesus Christ is alive? That He's literally seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, we shouldn't be like Peter in the Gospel account when he saw the tomb and he said, oh, and he walked home. We shouldn't be like the apostles were at that time before they had actually seen the risen Savior sitting in a, in a room thinking, well, people around me don't like me. This isn't fun. Maybe I shouldn't do this anymore. What should we do, Christians? Proclaim with your life that Jesus Christ is alive. Proclaim. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It doesn't always mean a Sunday school lesson or a sermon. You don't meet the guy at 7-Eleven. Hey, brother, let me lay out the Gospel for you right now. Well, there's 50 people in line. Maybe he's having a tough day. Maybe he looks frazzled. There's a bunch of people in line and you say something like, hey, man, I want you to know that I see how stressful this is and I wouldn't really enjoy it, but I want you to know that I care about you. Jesus is real. He's alive. It might be that simple. That might be the only time you ever speak to that person. But if you could share the love of Christ with him in maybe one small way or her in one small way, that could be world-changing for some people. That might be the hook that God uses to set them into Christianity. Could be. How should we live? Christians, we should obey him. 
We should love him. We should worship him. We should listen to him. We should read his word. We should honor him. We should follow him. And we should demonstrate, not just today, because think about it, it's just like Christmas. It's just like, um, you know, Easter. It is, it is technically Easter. Uh, it's just like all the other big holidays that we want to be focused on. We're like, yeah, you know what? I'm really excited. It's kind of like New Year's resolution. I'm going to really live for Jesus today. I'm going to really show the world, hey, you know what? I'm living for Jesus today. Brother, sister, that should be every single day of your life if you've been saved. That should be every single day of your life. Every single day of your life. That's how we should live. Bow with me. Father, we thank you, Lord, that we have a Savior who's alive. God, that he's not some dead man. That he's not some false God. That he's not some byword or forgotten religion. That he wasn't just some guy who heard some weird voices in a cave and wrote some stuff down on a book and then all of a sudden we're believing a lie. God, I thank you that you're real. Lord, I praise you that you have blessed us in such a way, God, that we can have your word in front of us. Lord, we can learn, we can grow, we can see the Christ. And God, as Christians, Lord, we can honor you and worship you and love you. So God, I pray again today for your spirit to move in a mighty way, God, that you would convict us of sin, God, that you would draw us closer to yourself. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, God, that you would overwhelmingly press on them, God, with the weightiest of weight and conviction. Lord, the fact that you are real, that your son was killed on a cross, that he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit three days later, and that he is the Son of God. God, that's what I pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we thank you for this day. God, a day to rejoice and a day to be glad for the fact that we don't serve some Mickey Mouse God, some false prophet. God, we serve the King of the universe. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We honor you. God, in everything that we ask, we ask in accordance with your will and in your name. Amen.